0: We have come today to the end of our series, and to do what we want to do now is be able to take some time to say, let's go from the very beginning right to the end. Obviously, we have no time to be able to read all the passages, but there's some key ones that would be good to go together. And so if you would follow me, you might want to follow me in your Bible if you want to or you don't need to. We can also have it on the screen. So what passage I call this? Paul's magnum opus. This was, like, considered the greatest writings of the Apostle Paul. Now, some other people would argue about that. But most people would say Romans, this book of Romans, is probably the clearest understanding of what God has done that the Apostle Paul taught. And so that was a really important thing for us to do. And it's an important thing because it has so much of what we still under today. Today, almost 2,000 years later, people are still reading the book of Romans and having God work in their lives in a wonderful way in doing that. And so we want to do an overview. And in doing that, we want to think, what's kind of the overarching theme that goes all the way from these chapters, from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 16? Is there one thing that we can say, this is what we can capitalize on? And it's this. It's probably this if we had to do anything. It's the gospel. The good news of the gospel, the, what we sometimes hear, you hear people talk about the euangelion in Greek, the good news. It's not just the good news, it's the greatest news in the world, that in a world of broken, fallen people, God in his mercy has given us a relationship with him as we come into repentance to him and understand the good news of the gospel. And so the arch, they made the big picture is probably the idea of the gospel. And there's probably two, let's say, secondary themes that go with that, maybe called two minor themes. I hate to say anything Paul writes as being minor, because they're terrific. But probably two major things that you see that come out again and again in these chapters. And the first one is one that you're very familiar with, most of you are, it's the word, ju- the word justification. This goes particularly back when we talked about the Reformation a long time ago, the whole fact is saying, how is it that a holy, perfect God can ever have a relationship with broken, fallen, turned people, people who've turned away from God? How is that ever going to happen? And justification is exactly about that. In what way could it be that we, as broken, fallen people who've turned away from God, how is it possible... That God could ever, that holy God, breach that gap between us. And justification's all about it, how God is doing that. We're particularly going to see that chapter 3 is the one that's probably most famous dealing with that issue. So if justification here is the first of the second, of the two of them, the other one has to do with the unity of Jew and Gentile. Remember, we talked about how in the Apostle Paul, about how he became a believer and how that was amazing. And some Jewish people were coming to faith and believing that Jesus really was the Messiah, but not all. In fact, not as many of them came as he thought were going to come to faith. And yet in the other way, there were non-Jewish people. We would call them Gentiles or people who were pagans, if you want to use that word. They were coming in swarms, and they were coming to faith in Christ. And Paul's saying, look at this all this animosity we've had between the Jewish people and the Gentile, the non-Jewish people, all these decades, all these years, Paul's saying, how can we bring them together? Two groups that had such antagonistic between each other. In what way? How could God ever make that happen? And that's exactly what he wants to do, bringing Jewish believers in Christ and Gentile believers in Christ together, that they're one people recognizing that we're still going to have different things that we may p- deal with in terms of issues, but we're still, there's unity together. So follow me as we're going to go quickly through this section. And I hope this will be helpful from you, because often we're focusing on one chapter or a piece of one chapter. We want to take the whole thing and obviously do that. We need to go fairly quickly. So stay with me. Romans chapter 1 starts off right away with telling us, here's the bad news. That's absolutely important what Paul starts with is bad news. He said, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godliness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Notice that phrase we've talked about before, who suppress the truth. We are truth people. We are people who suppress the truth of God. And he says, they suppress the truth since what can be seen about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. He's saying there's something deep in us, in all of us, that makes us feel like there's something with us that's greater than ourselves. We may not want to know that. We may not even want to to have anything to do with it, but we know there's something greater than who we really are. And then he gives an example of how God does that. For his, that is God's invisible attributes, the things of what he is, For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. And here's this important phrase. As a result, people are without excuse. He's saying everybody, every person, there's something in there that tells them there's something greater, something more wonderful, something so true. And he says, and yet people have turned away from that. And so what Paul goes on, he said, for though they knew God, there was a sense that they knew that there was some kind of God, they didn't glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their senseless minds were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became like fools, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds, and they worshiped four-footed animals and reptiles. And then here's this devastating phrase. Finally, God says, and God... Delivered them over. When people have seen, understood, there's a sense that there's some God greater than themselves and they turn away to it, he says, I'm sorry, God delivered them over. Okay, you don't want to know the truth of God, you ain't going to get the truth of God. It's a devastating, it's a sad thing to think about. When truth is given and you fail to respond, choose not to, he says, it's terrible. God delivered them over. So that's that. Romans chapter 2, Paul takes a little bit of that, and he builds upon it in this way. And so when he talks about the fact how God has done this, he talks about all the things that God has done for us and that what he calls us to do. And so he's taking this passage. He says, or do you despise the riches of his kindness, God's kindness, his restraint, his patience? See how much God has been so, in other words, He's been a wonderful God. He's a God that's been helping us. He's the one that's been so patient to us in spite of our stupidity. He says it's intended to lead you to repentance. In other words, why does God keep waiting? Why doesn't he just zap us and kill us? He's patient. He's loving. He's caring. But there does come a time where he says, okay, but because of your hardness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. All through the Bible, it talks about there is a coming judgment. And Paul says it's exactly right here. When you've had opportunity after opportunity after more opportunity, and you say, I don't want it, I don't want to know it, I don't want to know anything about it, Paul says, okay, I just want to tell you what God's going to tell you. There is a day of wrath that's coming. And he says he's going to have to pay each one, (coughs) excuse me, according to his works. Paul's very clear, making clear we're not saved by our works. But he is saying there's things that he's called us to do that generally we fail to do. And so that's chapter 2. Chapter 3, uh, by far, is one that most people know the best. Maybe. Maybe Romans 8 would be the other one. But this one, at least, chapter 3, is probably the best Thing we have in the scriptures that describe what God has done through Jesus, that we can have a relationship, that we can be justified, as we talked about that term. Notice what he says. Now we know that whatever the law says, Paul's talking about the law of Moses, we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. He's going on that theme of judgment. For no flesh, that is no person, is going to be justified in God's sight by the works of the law. Paul's making it very clear. The Jewish people, he's a Jewish person. He's saying, see, even though I'm Jewish, I recognize it's not just DNA, Jewish DNA, that counts. It's spiritual DNA that counts. A person who has a relationship with God through his coming, through repentance and faith. And so he says in verse 20, no flesh no person's going to be justified in his sight by the works of the law, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And then these couple of verses that are so important. But now, you thank God for this verse, but now it's like this is not the end of the story. It's really the beginning of the story. But now, apart from the law, the Mosaic law, God's righteousness has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets, that is God's righteous through faith. There's one of the two key major key words, faith. That is God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, another key word, since there is no distinction. And at verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's saying there's no one in this world other than Jesus who's actually lived a life that's totally good, totally clear, totally wonderful. And he's saying, why? All of us have fallen short. God, is, so does his glory. And we have not been able to keep, keep that. And so we're showed the glory of God. But notice what he does. Here's the good news. But he says, you know what? Even though we're all broken people, we've all made mistakes, he said, they are justified, made right. Not by doing something, not by working hard, but by recognizing what Christ is already willing to do for us. They're justified freely by his, here's the third major word, grace. Unmerited favor from God. In other words, you didn't earn this. I'm just giving this to you out of love. And so he says, through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, God presented him, and here's a big word, as a propitiation it has this idea of going back to the Old Testament and back to the pagans as well, where they would have a lamb and they would cut it open and they would put it on an offering and it would burn. And it was all that kind of thing. That word propitiation kind of goes with that. It's the idea of talking about that which takes away the sin that's there. In that case, it was like they used animals, of course. But the question is, how can God, who so, is so wonderful and is so holy. How can we have a relationship? And he says, propitiation is through faith in his blood, believing that what God did for us on the cross is that, that Jesus took our, our guilt upon himself. And he said, we have a relationship with him now because of that, because in his restraint, God passed over the sins committed. In other words, he could have judged us for all these sins, but he passed over them. And so he said, he presented him, Christ, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be both righteous and declare righteous to the one who has faith in Jesus. We keep hearing this word in chapter 3, faith, faith, going on and on. The term that often you hear about, or maybe you don't, is sola fide. Sola fide has this meaning, sola fide, and the other one called sola gratia. What they mean is pretty clear. Sola fide just means faith alone. Sola gratia means grace alone grace alone. There's two things. The two major things when we talk about this, the gospel, is faith alone. We're not saved by what we do, but what God in his mercy does for us. We have faith alone. In other words, we say, I'm willing to have faith to believe that this is true. What I've learned and what I've understood, it is true. And that is faith. And he says, and it's something you can't earn. It's grace alone. It's not something that you've done something well enough that God's going to give it to you. It's just saying, it's pure grace. You're right. You don't deserve it. It's pure mercy. It's pure grace. And so that's why this chapter is so important, because in goes on in chapter 5, and he makes this point of saying, listen, recognize here what's happening. He's kind of pillin- taking a little bit from before and bring it in. He takes about, say, OK, what, for a Jewish person, is the most famous person, the most important? And most everybody would say, it has to do with Abraham. The whole story began with Abraham. God told Abraham, go here. I'm not going to tell you where we're going to go, but you're going to go. And I'm going to make you a great nation. Not just, a, And you're going to be really, really old and too old to have children, and you're going to have children. And they all laughed and said, sure, right, of course it's going to happen. And God said, oh, yeah, it is going to happen. And the question is, are you have faith to believe that you in your old age are going to have kids when you've never had them before? Paul's saying, yeah. He said, look it. What can we say that Abraham, our forefather, he's like speaking as a Jewish person to his Jewish families, he said, according to the flesh is found. Now, notice what he says. If Abraham, who so was so important to the Jewish people, if Abraham was justified by works, in other words, he did this and he did that. If he did all these wonderful things, then, well, you know, he did have something to brag about. He had bragging rights darn, I'm good. Man, you can't believe how good I am. God is sure lucky to have a person as great as me. And Paul says, no way. The Greek term is meganoita, like no way, no way. It's like no way that's going to happen. No one is going to have a relationship with God by what they do, but what Christ has done for us. And so he says, then he has something to brag about, (laughs) but not before God. Nobody, and then he takes right a passage from the scripture, Old Testament. Well, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. Notice that phrase. Abraham believed God. He didn't say he did anything. He said he, all he did was say, you know what, God? I believe you're telling the truth. I believe, God, that you're telling me was important for me to know. Abraham believed God, and it was credit to him for righteousness. And again, it's saying physical DNA is not as important as spiritual DNA. We know that the Jewish people, for generation after generation, every male had to be circumcised. It was a sign of saying, I belong. I'm in. I'm bulletproof. I'm going to be fine because I'm part of that whole thing. And Paul says, hey, listen, I'm Jewish, too. And I'm telling you, it's not working. And what we're going to see is that God is going to work in a great way. Abraham believed God. It was credit to him for righteousness. Romans chapter 5, it asks the question that people ask, why is this world so bad? Why is it that we see such horror? I mean, if you look around the world and think things are doing well, there's something wrong. You're reading the wrong newspaper or something, because this is a broken world with broken people. And so Paul's asking this question. People saying to him, Paul, why is it so messed up? Particularly because you've told us the gospel here and people are coming to know Christ. But what's happening? Paul says, okay, I'll explain it to you. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man. This is talking about Adam, Adam's failure, Adam and Eve, to fail to, fail to follow what God told them to do. Just as sin entered the world through one man, death came through sin in that way. Death spread to all men. Think of it this way. About a couple months ago, you connected and talk to Dig Vote about it, what it was like when the Ebola thing was going on at Presbyterian Hospital. People were fair, very, very afraid, obviously. What if it started going? What if it started spreading? It was, a, it was going on through the whole country. I mean, it'd be devastating. We wouldn't have, none of us would have the opportunity to be able to get the help we would need, considering how fast that could go. Paul's saying the same thing here. He's saying sin is like a disease that spreads and goes. And he's saying, he said, it spread to all men because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law But sin was not charged to one's account when there was no law. And so what Paul makes here is very clear. He's saying, listen, here's what's happening. You need to see what he's doing. So that's Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He's a prototype of the coming one, but the gift is not like the trespass. Now notice this. If by one man's trespass, Adam, the many died. That one thing, that wrong thing he did, eating the apple, whatever it was, we don't know what it was. Whenever he did that, he said, not just one person died, not just two. Humanity died. And he says, but how much more have the grace of God and the gift of God overflowed to the many by the grace of the one, Jesus Christ? One, de- one person's sin brought devastation to the world. One person, a person by name, Jesus, brought life to the world. There's the contrast that's going on with that. Real quick, chapter 6, it asks this question. Paul's been telling us that we're no longer under the Mosaic law. We respect it, we understand it's from God, but we're living under a new covenant. Life has changed, and we are no longer under the law. And so if you're a Jewish person and you want to have a pork sandwich, go ahead and do it. And going, people go, no, I don't want to do that. We don't have to. But his point is, you're free to do it. But then that raises a question. Then why don't all of us, if we're all free, let's all get drunk and do whatever we want and go crazy because we're free. Thank you, Jesus. We're all free. Let's go, the bar is open. That's not what Paul's talking about, but it certainly sounds that way. Notice what he said. Well, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin and the grace may pull Oh God wants to be gracious? Let's let him be really gracious by doing a lot more sin. And Paul is going, no way, once and then mega kind of, no way. Absolutely not. How can we, now here's catch it, look at this phrase, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Now you may think, I don't remember dying to sin at any point. Paul's making an analogy here. His analogy that he's making, saying that we, as believers, are connected with Christ. It's this idea of the fact that when we come to God by repentance and faith, and we say, Lord, it's all to you, and we come to that, he said what he does for us is, he said, we are like connected with him. It's like maybe you've seen pictures of a person, maybe a couple people going into a jailhouse, and they've got chains on, they're kind of connected. Well, this is a good sense. We're connected with Christ in that way. What he does, we doesn't. We does. That's a good term. How about we do? That might be better. Or were you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized in his death? He's saying, he's, Paul's saying, I know this sounds a little odd, but you're connected with God. You're connected with Jesus. Excuse me. And so if you're connected with Jesus, you die with him in the ground. When he is resurrected, you're with him. It's that idea of that fact that we're connected And so he's saying, what Christ went through is what we are going through. And, of course, it's Easter that's coming on very closely, reminding us again of what God has done for us. And so what he says, therefore, we were buried with him by baptism. Baptism is a sign, a physical sign that shows that we belong in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we are going to walk in a new way of life. We're going to have a new life of what God has given us because what we have in relationship with him. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we'll certainly also be united with him his resurrection. In other words, if Christ died, okay, and we die with him. If he's resurrected, we're going too, because we're connected. Keep the idea of the fact that the guys are connected in their wrists, and they can't get out. You're connected with Christ. You're going with him. If he's died but resurrected, you're going to die too. But you're going to be resurrected too. You're going to be connected with him. And he says, because anyone who's died has been freed from sin. Romans chapter 7. Derry, you want to preach this one for me? Okay. Romans chapter 7 is one of the most unusual, but I think one of the most important passages among the ones we're doing. Because Paul's been talking about the freedom that we have in Christ. He's talking about the connectedness we have with Christ. But he comes around. Here's the guy who's this most unbelievable writer, who then is very, very, I think, because some people think it's not Paul that wrote this. I can't see how it's anybody but Paul that wrote this. But Paul is writing what we would not expect from him. We might expect and say, boy, I got the power of Jesus walking with me now, and darn, I'm really doing well. Uh, Things are really doing well for me, and you're really lucky to have an apostle like me? Like, I'm pretty sharp, aren't I, God? And Paul says, you know what? We know that the law is spiritual, the Old Testament law that God gave us. He said, but I'm unspiritual. You hear the people going, oh. He's one of our greatest apostles, and he's saying that he's not spiritual. He ought to be. And he says, you know, I'm sold as a slave to sin. Does Anybody want to hire him to working for you as a pastor? Paul, I think, is unbelievably clear of recognizing that as much as God has done for him, there's still going to be struggle for the rest of his life. And so he says... We know that the law is spiritual. I'm unspiritual. I'm sold as a slave to sin. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do it. But what I hate, I do. Does that sound like addiction? We live in a culture of addiction. And Paul's saying, that's the way I am. It's not with drugs. It's not with alcohol. But it has to do with my relationship with God. And to have you and if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. The law is not the problem. As it is, it's no longer myself who does it. It's sin living with me. It's like sin is like a, a smoldering core that's deep in your gut that, that keeps saying, no, you don't want to deliver that to God. You don't you, you want to keep that going. There's that little part of you that you're going to hold together. Keep that from everybody else. Just, it's just you. And, and sometimes you just got to say, I, I just got to get out of here. I, I just got to do what I want to do. Paul says, he said, As it is, it's no longer myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. I know nothing good that good lives in me. That is why my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what's good but I can't carry it out. And then this amazing phrase, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this dying body? Thank God he doesn't end there. The next verse says, Thank God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's saying we're all believers in a spiritual battle. Easy to say. We're all in a spiritual battle. And what he's saying is we can have uh, opportunity to live a life that's faithful to God, but we're not going to probably do it all the time all the way. It's recognizing that there's still that core in us that wants to be separate from God. But he's saying, thank God I have a great Savior, and there's forgiveness in the gospel. I would imagine everyone in this room has done things that we wish we hadn't done. And if you haven't done it yet, you'll do it along the way. But the reality, Paul is very, very clear, saying it's it's still a broken world. It's still Christ's world, and we have a great savior. But that's how it goes, he said. Now notice, if you would, Many people would argue this is the most important chapter. By the way, it's the midpoint of the Book of Romans. Um, Just two ways that people describe the Book of Romans. The inner sanctuary within the cathedral of Christian faith. I think he likes it. Okay, The tree of life in the midst of the Garden of Eden. All these different ways of describing the Book of Romans. But notice what this chapter is. I love the very first phrase of Romans chapter 8. Therefore... There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We just talked about Paul saying, person that I am, the struggle that I am, I'm a continued struggler. I keep coming back to the Lord. Forgive me, Lord, I failed you. And Paul comes right back. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. If you've come to faith in him, you are in the Lord's presence. The Lord is going to be with you. The Lord will give you the strength. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life sent me free by the law of sin and death for what the law was powerless to do and that make it weakened by the sinful nature. God did. How did he do that? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Christ took our place. He paid the debt for him by, giving his, by sending his son, Jesus Christ, in order that the righteous reco- requirements of the law might be fully met to those who live according to the sinful nature, not by the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. It's such a terrific passage. I'd encourage you to go back over it. Romans chapter nine. What do I say about Romans chapter nine other than it's hard? Romans chapter nine is dealing with the question. question it's the problem of Israel. Paul calls it his anguish. Romans nine, 10, and 11. Paul, who's this great apostle, is saying, why is it that my people my Jewish people are not coming as much as I thought they would when all the Gentiles, all the people we thought were dirty, ugly people that we hated, they're coming. They're coming, recognizing Jesus as their, their Savior and their Messiah, and, and they're coming like in scads. But my own people, Paul might say, my great parents, my grandparents, they're, they're not coming. Why not? Is there something wrong with the gospel? Paul's going to say, no, no, it's not. But he is going to say, the fact that Israel has, in one sense, turned away from God, that God has put, in in a sense, he's put like a covering over them, so they will not fully understand it. That's hard. But it's saying, when you understand that you've been given so much opportunity, not over just a few years, not over a few decades, but over centuries and there's still not a responsiveness to God through Jesus Christ, he's saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And that's a problem. It's a huge issue. It's a passage as well that reminds us a lot about the sovereignty of God. And a lot of us don't like to hear about the sovereignty of God. We like the idea, I'm a free person. I do what I want when I do what I want. it. And that's the way it is. And Paul says, no, you know what? I'm in charge here, not you. And when Paul talks about this, how important it is to saying, I have the right. He uses the analogy that he often does, is the idea of the person who makes clay. He makes clay, and he makes one to be a nice little little pot. And he looks at it and says, you know what? That's pretty stinky after I don't like it after And he says, I'll get rid of it. Paul uses that same illustration to say, God has, to, has the right to say, this person is going to be used for this person, and it's going to be different for this one. A lot of us don't like this. We live in a culture that talks about it's all about me. I am the one who's in charge here. Paul says, you know, guess what? You're wrong. It is an important section. We don't have time because it has three big sections 9, 10, 11. But it'd be really worthwhile to go over and read it again. Paul talks about there. Let me just read this first sentence I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms me in the Holy Spirit. Notice this. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. His heart is broken that his own people are not coming the way it looked like they thought that they would. Romans chapter 12, a short little chapter, but an important one. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I remember memorizing that verse when I was about eight years old, because it's a great verse. And he talks about living a life of sacrifice, holy, pleasing to God, which your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed, but be transformed. Don't let the world pressure you into being the kind of person you will, to be the kind of student you are, or the kind of leader you are. Are you going to let the world tell you what's important and what values and what's significant? Or are you going to let the gospel? tell you and mold you what you need to be and what God's calling you to do. Don't be conformed to that of this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and that you will discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect to God's will. It's a great little chapter. And so he says in this section, according to the grace given to me, I have different gifts. Prophecy, use it according to the standard of faith. And you know this section. He talks about what God gives everybody gifts. And the question is, Are you using those gifts for the gospel, for our church, as relationships with each other? Romans chapter 13. This is one that many people think odd. We have all these things about spiritual things, spiritual things. Now they want to talk about the government? Really? Are you sure we want to talk about government? Paul says, absolutely. Now think about this. Paul is an apostle. Paul is a great guy. Paul recognizes that he's under Roman, that's in certain sense, he's under Roman control, and he knows how brutal the Romans can be and how bad things can be. And then he turns around and says, it's really important. Everyone must submit to the governing, governing authorities. There's a lot of us like, I ain't going to have anybody to tell me what to do in the government. Paul says, yeah, you are. He says, he says, for those no, that no authority except that which is from God and those that are, exist are instituted by God. Paul basically understands what, we, what you learn just from running, looking at history. The only thing worse than having bad government is no government. Go to Africa and look at some of these small countries. And look what happens when there's really no government, when it's just one group fighting another, when it's people. And usually, it's the poor, it's the weak, the strugglers, We might not like paying taxes. It's coming up pretty soon. But Paul says, you know what? They have a right to charge you money for this and for that, to do what's necessary. And you can imagine, particularly some of the Jewish people that are reading it, going, I don't really like this. I don't like the government. You know, I'm a Jewish person. I shouldn't have to pay for this. Paul says, yeah, you should pay. And Paul says, you as a Christian should do that as well. It doesn't mean you have to like it. But you need to recognize that God is willing to use even of Romans, who they didn't particularly like, to be the ones to bring stability to, the, to their part of the world. Romans 14 is an easy, a relatively easy one. Accept anyone who's weak in faith. Notice, that, and don't argue about doubtful issues. So many Christians have spent so much time and so much arguing about issues. that When you look back and say, why did we spend so much time fighting about that? Paul says, don't do that. One person believes he may eat anything, and one who uh, is weak only eats vegetables. One must not look down on the one who does not eat, and one who does eat must not uh, look down on the one who does. Because, notice this phrase, because God's accepted him. Paul's merely saying, listen, if God's accepted this person, why can't you? If God is willing to accept this person as one of his people, can you be kind enough? to care for that person. Don't criticize another's household slave, because his own Lord will stand and fall. Notice what he says here, Romans chapter 15. He says, now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weakness of those who without strength and not to please ourselves. Our culture tells you it is all about you. Paul says it's not about you. It's about how do we care for one another. In the community, in our church. And he says, it's not about pleasing ourselves. Each one of us must please his neighbor for his good. In order what? To build him up. How can I encourage this person in the church? How can I strengthen them? How can we work together? And so he says, for even the Messiah, that is Jesus, in order, he says, in Jesus, for even the Messiah didn't please himself. In other words, Jesus didn't say, you know, I just don't really feel like going to the cross today. Maybe we'll think about it tomorrow. That's not exactly what Jesus said. Okay. That's what God has for me. I'm willing to deal that, to take the sin of the world. And then he quotes again from the Old Testament. The insults on those who insult you have fallen on me. They did it to me. It's going to happen to you. Are you willing to let the Lord to lead you and guide you? Romans 16, the last chapter. If you're still awake, stay with me because we're only looking at a portion of this. Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. A servant in the church of Sinecrae, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her what she may need uh, from you. And she talks, she has been a great help to many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, we know about them, we talked about them last week. He said, my fellow workers in Christ, they risked their lives for me, not only I but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. What we saw that last week was Paul lived in a relationship with so many different people. He's naming all these people. Yeah, thank you, Bob. You know, it's good to be you. Thank you for helping me, Susan. All these people, and they're connected. And Paul lived in a, re- a world of relationships, of caring for one another, of having an impact on the lives of one another. And Paul says, that's what it's about. Help these people out, these people who are going out as missionaries, these people that are working with ISI, these people in our group that are bringing people in to, to know the Lord. Paul said that's what it's all about. And it all comes back to what we started with. It comes back to the gospel, that God has given us new life in Christ. He calls us to take that which he's given us, to use that to have an impact in the lives of others that will change the lives of people forever. Paul tells us that this is what it's all about. It's about the fact that God in his mercy has taken broken people, brought them into right relationship with him, the justification we talked about. He's given us hope. He's given us understanding. He's given us a reason for living. And it comes back all about the gospel. Father, we thank you for the book of Romans. Thank you we had to be able to get an overview of it. And we thank you, Lord, for what it tells us Lord, help us to be able to hear the good news of the gospel that you tell us. Help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to do that you called us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.